Coming up on Art Palace. Everyone has the ability to be creative. So the sort of creative building blocks that were inside Pablo Picasso, they're inside all of us. It's about how you arrange them. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Nathan Gabriel, co-director of Theater Xavier at St. Xavier High School. I got, I got an art thing I could talk about. Are you ready? I mean, well, first of all, like, no, we are going to do this kind of the right way. <laughs> oh, okay. So well, I do. <laughs> I've got an art thing. I got, hey, hey. I saw some art on the way in. Let me describe Let it me tell you. you what I saw. Well, just give us a little intro about like who you are. I think that would be a good, good formal starting place. My name is Nathan Gabriel. And most notably, I am a teacher uh, and a director of theater. So I teach theater and creativity. I teach at St. Xavier High School, and I also teach at Temple University online from a distance, the one in Philadelphia. I teach um, a creativity course there called the Creative Spirit, and there you go. So did you always plan on being a teacher? No. I originally thought that I would be a, um, a director, and... I don't know if your listeners know this, but there isn't a lot of money in theater. <laughs> Is and that so? so? Mm-hmm. I figured that everyone was like, oh, that cash cow. Sure. Well, you get those students. You know, I ask the students, you're like, tell me some perceptions you have about actors. We talk about the myths of the business. And one of them that always comes up is they all make a million dollars. Hollywood fat cats. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I... In order to one of the th- side side hustles that I had while I was like an associate artistic director was I taught at a modeling agency, at a talent agency. I taught acting classes and I just fell in love with it and I would come home less tired and more energized from teaching than I would from directing or anything else. I, it somehow gave me life and energy and Virginia, so my wife Virginia started noticing it and she is the one who pointed out that I really seem to love this and this is something that I should think about doing. I mean, what do you think it is about teaching that you responded to better than directing? So the reason I wanted to be a director, what I am about to say, is very um, idealistic. Um, but I wanted to make the world a better place. Okay. I wanted to create art that sent messages that changed people for the better. Mm-hmm. And I found that it, a much more direct way to do that was to talk to them <laughs> instead of making an elaborate play <laughs> to try to draw them in. And uh, this is not to say that I, I still direct. I'm still a director and I still believe in the transformative power of art. I want to get to that. Let's talk about Hamilton. But um, I, the, the teaching gets me there a lot faster and with more regularity. So if I direct a play, I basically get an hour and a half with someone, right, Mm -hmm. to try to convince them of something. 
Uh, now I have a ton of tools, way more tools than I have in the classroom. I have lighting, I have sound, I have actors, I have a script. But as a teacher, I get to see them for an entire semester, day after day. And I, we, we do so many different things that it's much easier to reach people in that setting. Plus, a lot of people, that you walk into the classroom, they're, they're a more receptive audience, a student is. They come in with the idea of, yes. Mold me, teach me, change me. I am here to learn. And I I'm will open leave to a different person. Yeah, that's the yeah. hope, right? right? Like that's what you pay your money for. And you're like, oh, yes. man, I really hope I learned something and I'm different on the other side of this class. Um, whereas with a play, people tend to go in for the they, – they're hoping to be entertained first. Mm -hmm. And if a change occurs, great. But entertainment is still the foremost uh, desire. You brought up Hamilton – uh, earlier. Yes. So I know you've been really excited about it, uh, recently. Well, all right. So, well, I talked about the transformative power of art. It's funny because this story is going to go back on everything that I just said. <laughs> 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 okay. About how it's really hard to change somebody's life with a single, you know, an hour and a half story. Yeah. Um, so my wife and I saw Hamilton about six or seven weeks ago and, you could divide our 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 life right now into like pre Hamilton and post Hamilton. Really? So, yes. So we went and saw Hamilton, and that started a full blown midlife crisis for my wife. And she, you know, this is not my words. I'm using her words. Right. <laughs> and so it, the the one of the big questions of the play is, what is your legacy? What are you leaving behind? How are you, how are you going to change things? What are you doing with your life? Uh, the, the, for those of you who don't know the show, he is forever writing like he's running out of time, and all it's all about his impending death and how much can he get done before he dies, and which you know makes you as an audience member ask some pretty tough questions of your own life. And my wife has started asking those questions, and it has put her life into a, not, not just the play Hamilton, but also the creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's incredibly successful and using art to make a real change in the world. And he's an inspiring figure in and of himself. Mm -hmm. All of that together has put my wife into like a tornado of change. And for those of you who aren't married, when your spouse is going through a tornado of change, you are, I don't even, have you ever tried to stand in a tornado and not be affected <laughs> by it? You're going to get blown all over the place. And um, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I would say at least an hour and a half a day, we have talks about how are we going to do good in the world? How are we going to do more than we already do? I mean, the results have been, the, the, the talks have ranged from career changes to moving out of Cincinnati. We currently are writing a book together now. Um, we are talking wow. about taking the spare room of our house and transforming it into a place where underprivileged students can sleep. Like maybe somebody has enough money to go to the art academy, but they don't have enough money to pay for room and board or something. We step in and give that to them for free. Mm -hmm. Like, our whole lives are right, currently up in the air thanks to the play Hamilton. Uh, so, yeah. Wowza. I know. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, so that's an example of a story doing something right. Right. Um, yeah. But you, you, you feel like that's probably – you seem to have more realistic expectations of what you're well, making in the world. I think it's the, the exception, world. right? So that's the only play I can say that has ever happened to me with. <laughs> and, right. And you've seen I've, a lot of plays. I've seen a lot of plays. <laughs> and, I've, you know, is not just here in Cincinnati. Like, I've been to New York. I've hey. seen plays on Broadway that I left kind of shrugging my shoulders about um, where – 
So, yeah, I do ultimately think I still think the most effective way to get to people is is a, is a for me as a teacher. But, yeah, there are there is art out there that'll it'll change you. That's something interesting, too, about what you do in your day to day job and teaching theater at a high school mm-hmm. and like do you still kind of carry those aspirations into those kind of productions, knowing that you are working with say, you know, high schoolers ultimately, and that like, they are like a limited sort of tool set in a way that you have at your disposal, obviously, even if they're incredibly talented teenagers. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I took the job. Um, and that's still, so that's, that's still a question for me is, can that happen? Um, I've only been a high school teacher for four years. I was all college before that. And, one of the things I wanted to try to do was to bring real transformative theater to a high school audience. So the theater I work for at St. Xavier High School, they have an incredible theater program mm-hmm. and they have a huge audience base. It's close to 3000 people see every single play, which is a lot for any high school, for any theater period. You know, I've worked at semi-professional theaters that struggle to get that number. And so I feel an obligation as a director to bring something to them that is about their real life, is about really about the world that they live in and will speak to the community about what's actually going on. But what I am discovering now that I am in the middle of it is I am really the only person interested in doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And that high school audiences, they'll go with you to a degree, Uh but they still need to see little Johnny on stage doing something. (laughs) Like that's really why they're here. And so I, it's funny because I'll receive pushback from some faculty members when I talk about like doing a show like, like Fiddler or something. And I'm like, oh yeah. And there's, um, you know, there's been a lot of anti-Semitism in the news lately. I think this is something that could speak to the, 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 this moment in our, in our cultural blah, 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 blah. And I start talking about the social ramifications of whatever show it is that I'm, I'm thinking about. And I literally will have faculty members say to me, Nathan, this is high school. You just need to get them on stage. They need parents need to see their kids do something and, and get them off stage. <laughs> and, and so that is disappointing, but it is also I feel I still firmly believe it's a missed opportunity that yeah. if you're going to take somebody's most valuable asset, their time, if I'm going to take two hours from somebody's life, I better have something to say at least. Hmm. Do you think the students are aware of that kind of like social motivation underneath it all? That's part of my job as a teacher, right? Yeah. So like, for instance, I directed Lord of the Flies back during the 2016 elections. And it's very much a show about like, what society are we going to have? Mm -hmm. How do we choose who gets to be our leaders? And what does that say about us? And I wouldn't be a good teacher if I didn't grab those teaching moments when they arrived mm-hmm. and like stop the rehearsal, sit down and talk about it. Yeah. You were talking about Xavier's, uh, <clears throat> his, uh, you know, they've, they've, I mean, had this great theater program, St. Xavier, I should say, mm-hmm. has had this great theater program for a long time. And I remember we went to a production of Sweeney Todd in which afterwards we ran into the cast at IHOP and uh-huh. I was literally starstruck yeah you and our friend beth were like you couldn't talk to them no you i I remember correctly you wrote a note on a napkin Mm -hmm. about how great they were and like threw it at their table as you ran out and it ran away yeah because you you were too a group of high schoolers yeah um yeah and they still they still go to that very ihop they have a (laughs) lot of traditions at St. X, and one of them, every single night of the production, there's a really specific restaurant in the city somewhere that they will go. Okay. Like, tonight's 
Skyline night, but it's not just any skyline. It's, it's really sky. that skyline, uh-huh. and it's been that way forever. That's what I'm discovering about St. X is that it's really old. Yeah. So, so if I can give you... It's th- like I, the oldest... What is, it's, it's got some crazy... <clears throat> I, I can't remember, but it's like one of the oldest high schools in the city or something, isn't it? <sighs> I, you know, I'm tempted to say the country, but this is a pretty old country. So they were... <laughs> but let me give you some... Let me put it into um, some kind of context. We can also everybody. just like look this up, too. No, so no, no. I, I know the exact... It's 1831 is oh, when okay. it was founded. Okay, cool. And But the, if you're like me, numbers don't mean much. I need some sort of landmark time-wise to understand when something is. So St. Xavier High School is older than A Christmas Story by Charles Dickens. Just... Yeah. It was out, you know, about no. 20 years before that got written. It's older than the New York Times. The other day for Memorial Day, they did a thing where all the students sat in silence and they read the names of every single student who um, died in a war oh, okay. from St. Xavier. And they had to start at the Civil War. Wow. And it, my mind was just blown. I was like, how old is this school? Yeah. When was the Civil War? <laughs> I studied theater. I don't know these things. <laughs> so that was really, um, that was really, and so with something that is that old, what I am learning is that you get an enormous number of traditions and the idea of tweaking them at all is almost sacrilege because we've been doing this since 1831 yeah. and we're not going to change. You're, to, to put it in perspective for us, that's 50 years older than this institution as oh, well. Other than the art museum. Yeah. We were founded in 1881. Wow. And the doors didn't open. The building wasn't finished until 1886. So, yeah, you're older than Music Hall, you know, you're older than most institutions in this city that yeah. that we, you know, think of. So that's It's crazy. like the first thing we did was when we decided to set up Cincinnati was build St. Xavier <laughs> High School. Tell me a little bit more about uh, your classes on creativity and what, what those are about. Yeah, so now you're getting sort of, you're asking about like the, the crux of my life, actually. This is like one of the big ways that I sort of define myself as a person and that I exist in the world. And the more I learn about creativity, the more I realize about myself and about how I have been working all these years. And I never just had, I had never had words for it before, Hmm. but when I start reading about descriptions of creative people and the way that they work and the things that they do, I'm like, ah, now it makes so much more sense. It's almost like reading a psychology textbook uh, when I read these things. So I teach uh, multiple courses on creativity. Uh, I teach the creative thinking and I teach something called the creative spirit. Um, Spoiler, they're really the same course at two different places. And... um, (laughs) But uh, it's taken from, you know, a a, a wide variety of of texts about creativity. And the, the, the thrust of the class is that everyone has the ability to be creative. So the sort of creative building blocks that were inside Pablo Picasso, they're inside all of us. It's about how you arrange them. And I'm also really fascinated with the brain, mm-hmm. just in general. And so learning about how you can harness the power of the brain to do something creative sort of on demand mm. and to create a landscape where creativity can occur um, sort of by design, that's really fascinating to me. And I'm finding that it is useful and helpful to people uh, who feel stuck in their lives or feel stuck in their jobs or feel like they have insurmountable problems, the, the way out is a creative solution. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. I actually was talking about this on the show not too long ago with uh, one of my former professors and talking about my experience going to the art academy and how one of the like the best things I got out of that experience was basically being forced to be creative on demand, mm-hmm. like a lot, mm-hmm. and especially in my early, you know, the first year or so where it was it was rapid, you know, like all right, well, you've got four projects to work on, you know, and and up to that point, I'd been able to sort of spread out my creative output in that way where, well, I'm going to work on this thing and then something else will come up. And this was like, there's no time, you know, like you have to make something right now. And that really makes you start figuring out how you work and how, what your system is and how, like, and I don't think it's the same for everybody, certainly. I, but I did figure out like within that year, like, oh, these are the things I need. This is how I work. Right. And this is what I need to do that. Yeah. And I, and you are largely correct that it is not the same for everybody. That's one of the big lessons is that creative, creative minds in general, I'm listening to something right now or reading a book right now called uh, wired to create. And they are like, yeah, the creative mind is a real mess (laughs) and everybody's really different except what's kind of fascinating is there are these things that everyone can do Mm. to create a space where, where creativity is more likely to occur. Okay, like what? Okay, so you want to, um, in, if, you're, if you're trying to have a creative thought, what you need to do is do a gently busy activity that does not absolutely focus your mind and will allow your mind to wander. So like showering. At this point in our lives, we know how to shower. Mm-hmm. We don't think about it. We, our brain turns on autopilot, but we're also warm and comfortable. Mm. And there's no stimulus for us to look at. We're just staring at probably a white tile wall or a curtain. And that they are discovering is the ideal space for the creative mind because the mind isn't focused on anything else. And it'll end what I mean, the process is called right brain roaming, but your right brain goes into your left brain and starts smashing facts together that don't necessarily belong together and creating original thoughts. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, in, in my own experiences, and I'm sure a lot of people have said like, oh, this was one of those shower moments, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. hear that all the time of people saying like, oh, I was in the shower and I thought I was just thinking of this. And, and you know, for me, like other things are like another one you hear about is like washing dishes. Yeah, right? yeah, I, those are my two big ones. Yeah. Washing dishes, shower. Bike rides are huge for me and dog walks. Are I was huge about to say me. dog walks are my other one. Like yeah. I, uh, I would say actually the only thing that probably keeps dog walks from being more productive for me in that way is that I use that time to also like to listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. So I do have something that I am actively sort of thinking about, mm-hmm. um, and, and is sort of taking my attention in the way that, you know, a tile wall doesn't. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. And sometimes that, that, that I agree. And the not <clears throat> the not doing anything, I think, is important. That yeah. and it's something that we as a society are just really bad at. Uh, we always got to be doing something. You know, our TVs now travel with us in our pockets, mm. and so the podcasts as well. And forcing myself, like on the drive here, my instinct was to listen to an audiobook. Right, and I said, like, you know what? Maybe I should just drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's totally true. I, I think I'm I'm totally guilty of that. Of like any downtime I fill with things like especially podcasts are like my vice of things mm-hmm. I listen to a lot. And it's probably like a sense of, you know, and I've actually one of the things I've recognized in myself recently is that if I start to feel like 
I need to listen to something like it's somehow like a duty or something, but I don't really want to like, that's always like, what am I doing? Yeah. Right. You know, like, why am I, why am I keeping this thing? Like it's almost like a, another job or something. And mm-hmm. I've just had to start being like, nah, I'm not, I'm cutting this out. Like I don't need this thing. And I'm just holding on to it because out of some weird sense of duty or something. Well, you've always done that way more than I, Letting the listeners in here. Russell and I are friends outside of this room. I know. I was about to say, we probably should have, like, I feel like there have been hints of, like, we are not just like, we didn't just meet. Probably. People probably had that sense. Uh, Yeah. So, Russell and I, you know, old friends, known each other since high school, lived together for a a time being. uh, And so, I know a lot about him. And he and I have really similar interests, and we listen to a lot of the same things. But I would abandon them way before you. And I would, I would talk to you, and you're like, yeah. And you would almost be sad about it. You'd be like, yeah, I'm still listening to that. It's not good, <laughs> but I'm still listening. Yeah, I know. And I'm trying to get better about that because it really, like, and I will hold on to stuff, and I'll be like, ah, oh, it's just not the same, you know? And, like, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, when we were talking about, like, you know, the differences in people, like, what they need to be creative. One of the things, um, what I was thinking about the differences in me and say versus like a lot of other artists is that for me, I have to know what a thing is about before I make it, you know, like I have to know what is this about? Like, what am I talking about? Um, what is the point? Um, and a lot of artists don't have that Mm -hmm. thought. And, and, you know, there are a lot of people who are say painters who can go into a studio and just be like, no, I just sit in front of a canvas and it's color and it's paint and it's, you know, like that just takes over and that's the thing and Mm -hmm. that's what it's about. Um, But for me, something usually has to really be about something and that idea is what then tells me what kind of form the thing needs to take. I'm very similar as a director. Um, I need to know what it is the show is saying thematically and then I suit the show to support the theme. Uh, But you're right, uh, the... There's an academic term for what you're talking about called thinkering. It's one of the most ridiculous <laughs> academic terms I've ever heard, but that's what thinkering. it's called, where people think and tinker uh-huh. at the same time. And yeah, there's a lot of a lot of creatives, not just in the arts, mm-hmm. but everywhere that are like, uh, let's start on it and see what happens. And that happens to me to a degree. Like midway through making something, I'm like, oh, this is what it should look like. Right. It's not what I envisioned, but that's fine. But yeah, there are people that are like discovering the meaning of what they're doing halfway through. Yeah. They're like, I set out to design a better potato chip, but what I'm really designing is like uh, the thing that goes on guitar strings, uh, you know, to like keep your, keep the oil from, that's a true story. Uh, keep the oil from your hands from like destroying the string. And yeah, they figure it out halfway through making something else. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, uh, yeah, look at that. Yeah. And I think, and obviously like, I don't want to make it also sound like I'm so completely analytical or something like there's obviously like a lot of intuition that's a part of that process. But for me, it is that sort of the big question that gets me going. It's like, that's the start of the, the engine for me. Mm-hmm. And then once I'm on that path, then it kicks more into just like intuition and obviously, Oh, okay. So then this looks like this and this feels like this. And I know what this is going to be. And then I'm much more fluid, but I just need that thing to start me off. Yeah. So what's kind of interesting about what you're, I was just 
just reading about this the other day. Writers have a creative process that's different from everyone else's as hmm. scientists are discovering. Their their process, the process for writers is similar to other writers, but not similar to like everyone else who's working in the creative fields. And one of the big things is there's always some sort of incident in the real world that starts a writer up. Hmm. And they spend a good deal of time at the beginning of their process writing and trying to figure out what it is they have to say about that incident. Hmm. Like they're searching for that meaning and trying to take the intangible ephemeral experience and put it into concrete words. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably, I, I, I kind of think more people should do that, but <laughs> I think that's, I, yeah, I, I probably am certainly not that, not that, driven i feel like a lot of times that's sort of like i figure out what the thing's about to start and then halfway through i kind of realize it it, it firms up a little bit you know what i mean like mm-hmm. okay this sort of the then i start to see like oh okay now i understand why i'm doing this thing all right now i'd like to ask you a question okay. i'd like to flip the interview table what so a play will have between six months to a full year for a director to prepare for it mm. You know, working at the super high end levels, you get a full year, sometimes you know, lower and semi pro, you get about six months. Um, a movie takes years right. to plan out. And it's like, you know, and a lot of this is research. What are we trying to say? How do we say it? How long does it take for a work of art? Let's stick typically here. So let's say a painting. How, 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 how what is the prep time and execution time? Oh gosh. I mean, that's really is, it would be really hard to say because again, there's so many different ways of working. I mean, the, obviously scale is going to affect that. Like it takes a lot longer to make a painting that is 10 foot wide by six feet tall than it takes to make a two foot by three foot painting. Right. Like there's just a practical element of like, well, I'm covering more space. So that is going to take more time. And again, the different types of work. I mean, I know there are people who work meticulously in planning their, the image and that's how they work. Like they are creating this whole idea and sketching it out. And then they, they have this sort of very finished, polished idea, maybe similar to the way, um, I don't know, a more traditional like film or something might be conceived of is like, I have the idea in my head and now we're going to do the steps to make that thing happen. Um, but then there's a lot of people who are open to the experimentation of, of painting and realize, Oh, I thought this part was unfinished, but it's actually the, it's the most interesting part of the painting. And what if I painted over all this stuff that was the intentional part? And now this is the focus. I mean, there's lots of people who work like that. Yeah. Picasso was like that. He would, they were discovering that he had, many paintings underneath yeah his paintings yeah so i mean that's like a a process but it doesn't mean that's everybody's process so i mean there are paintings that happen probably in a day you know and there are paintings that happen over months and there are paintings that happen over years so what i'm hearing from you is deadlines aren't a big part of the art world well they are if you have a show (laughs) like i mean there are that can be a part of it too because there are people who have exhibitions planned and yeah. they have a gallery and they have like, okay, well you have to get this show up. On well, that's this what I'm day. talking about. So what would be a reasonable amount of time to approach an artist and say, can you create something for this exhibition? I mean, again, it just, it's all about scale. I mean, if you were doing something like, I think probably if you said, Oh, you have a month to do something, most artists would be like, 
if you're paying them well enough, would figure out what they could do in that time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's really any any way to say, oh, this is how long it takes, because obviously you can do things at different sizes and scales and sort of adapt the work. I think, I mean, th- that's the way I work is sort of say, well, this is worth my time to do this. This is worth the money to do this. And Now, you know. I don't worry about budget and money too much that's, as an artist. That's never been something that I've ever been, I, the numbers really, they just, they drag me down my whole process. But I love working within constraints. Mm-hmm. So I just, um, we recently took a show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And that has a ton of constraints associated with it. Like you're, where you're going to work is going to be the size of a cracker box. You get literally 30 minutes to set it up and tear it down. Wow. And then the rest of it needs to be your performance. And so, um, you know, working within those, plus you need to fly it across the ocean to Scotland, whatever you're building. So you're like, okay, so not set heavy. (laughs) Right, right. And and working with those kind of constraints, I find, is a lot of fun. Yeah. Because you're like, what can I make with the constraint of zero set, um, but still be interesting and tell a story and stuff like that. Well, and that, um, I think I, I'm also repeating myself from a past episode, but, um, I mentioned this, I think in, in that same episode that I maybe mentioned earlier with, uh, my professor Gary Gaffney, I had a teacher at the Academy who taught a class called creative processes. And one of the things I always took away from that class was that, um, limitations actually help creativity flow. Yeah, that's something that we that I teach as well. That constraints enhance yeah. creativity, and I think it's because we you, we live in the real world, and yeah. you never make anything without a constraint. Even if you're you know a super billionaire who has all the resources in the world, there's there's still going to be the constraint of say time. Where it's like, how much time can you devote to making this project? Right. And even if it's even if it's just a hobby, like how much time is your spouse going to give you in the garage to make this? Yeah. Uh, how big is your garage? You know, there's always a constraint, and I think that's something that people don't understand. They, there's really gross industry terms like blue sky solutioneering, where where companies sit down and they say like, "All right, guys, no constraints. Right. Tell me what you know." What, is, what what you're thinking, you know, if we, we if you had one month to raise profits, like, what would right. you do? And those generally tend to produce really ridiculous, unattainable, not helpful ideas. Right. Whereas people who work within constraints uh, and are used to that, that's where the true creative uh, breakthroughs come from. Yeah. Um, well... Uh, I was thinking we could go look at a work of art right now, if you would like. Yeah. Um, and it is actually by a St. Xavier grad. Ooh. And I think it's a pretty creative thinking piece. <laughs> <laughs> Your face when I said that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll take credit for that. Yeah, <laughs> Let's hope it was somebody I taught. Uh, pretty sure you didn't. He's like older than your parents. <laughs> <laughs> So we were looking at this piece out on uh, the the 
what we call the ambulatory. <laughs> sure. That's, that's a great word. Uh, uh, we, I think we mostly use it because we have another balcony that we call the balcony. And so as to not confuse them, but it's, it's sort of the area that wraps around the great hall on the second floor and is home to um, mostly the wolf collection and a lot of other decorative arts. Um, and so we were looking at a piece by an artist named Paul Marioni called the premonition. So you're not looking at a picture of it anymore. What do you remember about this piece? It was dark, scary, deeply uh, um, rattling, like like to your core, where you you felt like you were looking at something that went beyond. It wasn't so because the imagery in it were all was almost abstract, like it made no sense why all these why all these dark images would be right next to each other. You definitely immediately understood that it was actually about what's inside a person and not necessarily about the outside world. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's go, let's go back a little bit. Cause you sort of already into like analysis of it. It's where I live. Okay. But let's tell people what it is because they cannot see it. Yeah. So, so first off, um, you called it a painting earlier and there, there is some paint on it, but that's probably giving people maybe a different idea of what this thing is. Mm-hmm. Because if you had to describe it in another way, what would you maybe call it? What, what, instead of a painting? Yeah. Oh, no, it's like a stained glass window, but of horrific imagery. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 this piece of, I think, maybe multiple panes of glass. I'm not sure how many, if it has multiple layers or not. It feels like it does. It feels pretty, like, there's depth to it, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's this light box that has, like, most of the images are in glass, and some of it is leaded in the way that stained glass is. Um and the imagery is that you've been describing. There's this sort of like house um, on the far left side of it, which has a window. And there's just these like eyes peeking out of the house, which look very cartoony almost. Yeah. And but they're kind of also very sinister looking eyes. Mm. You don't think so? I didn't get the sinister in here. Let me see that picture. They they read a sinister to me. No, they, they are. Let me see. Because I was thinking about the eyes. <laughs> No, they are not sinister. Okay, they we disagree are, on the eyes. They're almost cat-like, and I think that's what you're, where you're getting. But they are more of a neutral eye. It's somebody that, to me, they're fearful eyes hmm, okay. because because whoever whoever that person is is hiding in the shadows and looking outside and not going outside. To me, they are afraid eyes, and they are. They're um, hiding in the shadows. I think your analysis of that is probably more keeping with what probably the artist intended and probably what they think about the piece, too. I think why I read them as sinister is that kind of cat-like, um, that they do feel cat-like, but that they're at the height of a human, so they feel yeah. sort of monstery. No, I But hear you're you. right that they're not, like, in the way that if this were, like, a Scooby-Doo villain, they're not, like, interned, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like, they're yeah. not tilted They're up. not angry. And, right. they, and it's funny because they're kind of drawn neutrally. Or drawn. They're kind of however you think, however you make glass stuff. He, he's made <laughs> them he's made them neutral eyes, but the the fact that they are hiding a person in the shadows makes you think that person is afraid. Yeah, and so uh, there's a on the outside of this house, which is by the way like 
a really bright orange color. Mm-hmm. It has a red roof and a kind of California style roof that, you know, kind of rolling tiles. Mm-hmm. And then outside there's a pitchfork leaning against the house, which is also a really weird image uh, with this uh, shadow of the pitchfork cast onto the house. Then we have this landscape, which is actually most of the picture. Like if you really look at the kind of real estate of this image, the house is a really small part of it, but yeah. it actually makes a really big impression. Yeah, the, the vast majority of this picture is a hellish landscape uh, that is completely barren with writhing snakes coming out of the ground. Like uh, it looks like they go on for infinity, but there's probably about 25 of them in the picture. Three volcanoes with lava running down them (laughs) and like there is a bunch of smoke in the air and it is a black sky with some red peeking through and way off in the distance is an unforgiving moon yeah or sun i mean who knows you don't know because it's so it can't make it through all the pollution yeah like the sky is so like who knows what time of day this is it is really it is a really strange sky and the sky um, to me appears to be mostly made of just sort of layers of glass that are like the color seems to be mixed into the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's got that, um, it doesn't appear to be like painted on top of it. Like when, when people say stained glass, t- typically that means the glass is stained, like literally with color. Mm-hmm. So it's like clear glass that's colored, but this appears to be colored glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's the reason too, it's, it's hard to know exactly what we're looking at is I, I took a picture here. So we would know what all of this is made out of, because this is, is, you know, Paul Marioni works in glass, but he really is pretty experimental and will combine materials in ways that are not necessarily, you know, um, considered orthodox or, you know, he's, he's, he's very free in how he, he works with things. So this is glass, copper foil, lead solder, paint, graphite, silicone, plywood frame, and light box. So there's a lot of materials going on here, and it's kind of hard to know where one starts and one ends, you know, because he's painting on the glass, he's drawing on the glass. I think the shadow of the um, pitchfork might be the graphite, mm-hmm. as far as I, I don't know. It's really hard to know. No, but looking at that shadow, it looked... Yeah, you, you're probably right. That's kind of what I've assumed, but, you know, who knows? I mean, he could be using graphite in other places. Um, it's really a really strange image. It's, I mean, it's an unsettling image. Um, yeah, I had a visceral reaction to it when I first saw it, which drew me to it. I, I don't want to, I know I've been saying negative things about it, but I, I think it's probably a, a phenomenal piece of art. Uh, I love it and, and sort of wish it was in my own home. That's, but it is undeniably upsetting. Well, I mean, and that's totally what the artist intended, um, you know, and I'll, I'll try to read this from the label. I think this gives a little bit of of insight into what where the artist was coming from. Um, but, you know, it says this piece was made in 1981 and it kind of points out that this was made around the time of, you know, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear. And you're shaking your head like, I don't buy it. No, I didn't. I don't buy any of that. Why not? Well, I my, so I have two reactions to it. And I think for this work of art to still be um, 
So I didn't know any of that when I looked at it, right? But mm-hmm. I still had a, a big reaction to it. Totally. Which means the it's it, like all that stuff might have been accurate at the time, but it is now. There's something you more. There's the more interesting thing is the universal elements of the work of art to me. Um, so I have two reactions to this. One is an objective one. The other is subjective. Mm-hmm. So objectively, it's about fear, the person is afraid to go outside because outside is hellish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sort of objectively that resonates with me as it's probably about, you know, if I were to, to break this down, I would say it's probably about the parts of ourselves that we're afraid to explore, you know, um, be it your, your, your sexuality or that you are, you know, just a jerk and you're afraid to, to do some sort of introspection about it, but whatever it is about yourself that you're not willing to admit exists, that's what's going on. And I get that from the pitchfork, which implies that somebody is supposed to be outside in this working. You mm. are supposed to be outside tilling this soil, writhing with snakes, but he is too afraid to do it or she, the person is too afraid to do it. They are going to stay inside the house. And so it is about the fear of the darkness keeping you from doing what you have to do. That is my objective analysis. Subjectively for me, I just finished reading a book called the demon next door, which I never read these. It's a true crime story. And it is the true, true story of a serial killer. And that was equally hard for me as, 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 re, as looking at this painting was to hear about the things that this person did. And it's a part of human beings that I always, that I wish didn't exist and that I hope don't exist inside me, but I'm afraid that they do. And even in talking about the book with other people, I'm almost afraid to explore the possibility that the things that this person did exist inside all of us. Well, I think also what, you know, when you sort of like started shaking your head about the Cold War stuff is I think probably in uh, Paul, we actually brought Paul here for a lecture not too long ago. And I can't remember if he did discuss like the literal like what inspired this piece. And he probably even mentioned it then. Um, He probably has talked about that uh, possibly. I can't remember. So um, but I think what you're picking up in is that this is a piece that does not live in 1981, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing in here that really ties it to a time or a place. Um, And because it is so, it, because it is so general, even the, you know, I described that house as very cartoonish. It feels very symbolic. And I think that's why you're connecting it with all the, a much more psychological reading of it, which I think is fair. You know, maybe the artist did, was inspired by, Uh, the cold war, but that's not really what we get here. Is Mm -hmm. it like, and I don't think a lot of people who walk up to this piece will really come away going like, Oh, clearly this is about the cold war. No, this is the 1980s all over. Like, no, no, like, yeah, there's nothing in it that connects it to that other than the fact that that's when it was made. But, um, when you look at like what the artist has made, that's not there. Mm -mm. And this is a tendency of a museum is to like take the artist's word for things a lot of times. And like, well, that's what the artist said. That's what the artist intended. But you also like, just look at the thing, you know, like the thing is doing something else like this is. And and so I think you're right. Like to sort of get like, nah, like that's not that. Like this is something about something deeper than that. And maybe that fear, maybe the fear he felt 
uh, in that moment, that same fear you're describing of afraid to go outside, afraid of the darkness in people, that's all there, right? Like if we're talking about the Cold War, that's still relevant. But it's like he's he's selling it short almost, or we're selling it short. Intent is really useful in trying to understand where the artist was coming from. To me, I it almost doesn't matter. Uh, so as a teacher, I always have to grade things, right? I have to, and and mm-hmm. I often, whether I'm dealing with college students or high school students, I often have to tell the students what they've just said when they made a work. Like mm. I, I'm like, oh, well, what you said was X, Y, and Z, and they're like, oh man, what I intended to say was A, B, and C, right? And it like kind of almost doesn't matter what they intended to say because the work stands on its own, and your interpretation of it. Or, or what the work is saying trumps what your what inspired the work, right? And I think about that a lot when I think about sort of the just like messages and media and things that are say like homophobic or misogynistic or racist that are there. Mm-hmm. Like you know, um, you can't you can't um, take that away from them and you know maybe the people making those things were like well i didn't intend it i was just living at the time you know and that's what i did but it's like yeah but you did that's what's in there you Mm -hmm. know and i think that there's a lot of those there's a lot of those messages and things that people say in media and in art um that are not intentional but they're just as powerful even if they're unintentional so i have a question for you sure once again, I'm going to flip the tables. Oh, man. You uh, want to play Terry Gross now. <laughs> um, why glass? You know, um, I'm not sure in this instance, other than the fact that, you know, th- he had a history of working with glass. He's He was a really important p- figure in creating um, sort of this art glass movement along with a lot of other artists. Um, but so maybe part of it is just, that's what he was used to working with at the time. But I would say for this piece, what it, how it uses glass well is, you know, in the, the sort of the glow, especially in the depth that creates in the sky, I think would be a hard thing to create in another way. Um, I think the glass in this instance helps create this sort of otherworldly feeling. Um, one of the things that really is extra powerful at maybe is making the blacks even blacker, right? Like you, usually the base of black is compared to white paint or something, you know, the whitest white of a page, which is being illuminated by a light in the gallery or something. Here we go from literally something glowing with the sun to this really deep, dark black sky. Um, and I do, that wouldn't be possible with any other with any other medium. So I agree with everything you just yeah. said. Uh, and I, and thank you. Cause I had not, I hadn't thought of any of that. Yeah. Um, but I had one more thing. Uh, so mine uh, goes right back into the meaning of it. Mm. It doesn't exist as soon as the light is off. As powerful mm. and unsettling as it is, it comes and it goes very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think goes back to my personal interpretation, not the, not the subjective of my objective interpretation of this is about the inside of a human being where there will just be a flash of this. And then without any warning at all, the ground is just filled with snakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause this is not a piece that I've, I don't think I've ever seen it turned off necessarily. I mean, I'm sure if I just walked through that gallery at the right time, I would be able to see it. So I think it, it does probably almost uh, cease to exist without the light on. I don't think it would look like much of all uh, anything. I'm pretty sure this image would almost 
disappear. Yeah, that's the one of the, the the notable things about stained glass windows in general, right? Like at night, they they almost don't exist. Yeah, and or, then it, yeah, and then suddenly the sun comes up, and you're like, my goodness, this has been here the whole time. Yeah, you have to be in the right place at the right time to yeah. kind of experience it. And um, it, it also it, that made me think of almost when you, the way you described it made me think of it in kind of theatrical terms too of the the idea of turning it on and presenting it and having a duration of like this thing is on now, this thing is off now, mm. which is an Another thing that I don't know if that's really a part of it, but it just becomes a part of anything that has a light source, really, I Mm -hmm. guess. So, yeah, again, I don't know how much that was really considered. When you mentioned the volcanoes, one of the things that makes me kind of laugh about them, they're kind of it's kind of funny, kind of weird. It adds to the just general strangeness and the dreamlike quality of this piece is that like. I think when you first look at it, like you describe them as volcanoes because they feel like that. But then when you like really look at them in terms of like how they are scaled with like the snakes, they wouldn't be in like the relationship to the house. They mm-hmm. wouldn't be that big. Right. Actually. So it would just be like three little hills almost. Uh-huh. So it's a really strange thing where they can be both three little hills and three giant volcanoes in the background. All that at goes once. right back into that abstractness of it that I was talking about that you want to place it inside of a human instead of uh, some sort of realistic portrayal of anything in the outer world. Well, it, you know, and it feels so dreamlike to me in the way like a real actual dream feels and not like the way like, oh, there's a wacky chicken or something, yeah. you know, like the way, like a lot of people render dreams. No, as absolutely. Like over, over yeah, the yeah. Top. You're like, oh, there were volcanoes, but they weren't really volcanoes. They right. were little hills. <laughs> and, and there were, you know, I was supposed to work outside, but there were snakes coming out of the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It's very dreamlike. Good call. And like even like the way the house is like doesn't quite fit with the rest of the landscape like well there's this house but it was almost like a cartoon house mm-hmm. like you can almost hear like your coworker describing this to you and yes. like thinking you're like what are they on about <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's funny because when you describe it i'm sorry that everyone can't see this right now because describing it doesn't bring home the unsettling nature of it it's also i think this is another like you know obviously this is sort of our mo at a museum of like you should see art in person but i also think this is a piece that like even now because it's too noisy out there to really record um we're looking at a picture of it and i feel like looking at an image of this does not also do it justice because the seeing it in person and the the sort of way the light is moving through it is an experience in a, in itself. And I think that's true of all art, but it is especially true of this piece. Yeah, I agree. Well, did you have any other thoughts, Nathan? Um, just that I had a really delightful afternoon. Oh, great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Paris 1900, City of Entertainment, Art Academy of Cincinnati at 150, a celebration in drawings and prints, and Giorgione's La Vecchia. Join us on Sunday, April 14th at 3 p.m. for a free gallery experience featuring dance inspired by art. We'll be joined by Pones to explore the museum's collection through movement. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. 
Our theme song is Ofran Musical by Bacalao. And as always, if you enjoyed what you heard today, why not write us a nice review? I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. <laughs>